If you're still seated with us, you can turn to Genesis chapter 46. We've got uh, this Sunday and next, and we're going to be wrapping up Genesis. I went back and, and looked. We've been in Genesis for, I think, about 10 months. And when I think about 10 months to go through 50 chapters, that seems like a pretty good pace. If you look at, uh, if you count it by weeks, I think 40 weeks to go through 50 chapters. It sounds better to say 10 months to go through 50 chapters. It sounds like we were doing a better job with our time management. But nevertheless, uh, we spent a good amount of time in Genesis. Uh, I know that it has been profitable for me personally. I hope it has been for you as well. So uh, we are, as we move into chapter 46 and 47 today, we're actually moving into um, not just the last chapters, but the conclusion to the Joseph story and to the Genesis story as a whole. And we want to think in light of that for how the scriptures set us up and brings this story to resolution. So I'm going to read for us, starting at 46, I will read verses 1 through 7. And then we'll pray and then we'll drop in at a couple key moments through these two chapters in 46 and 47. Doug, if you could just, just back me off just a little bit. Thanks. Genesis 46, starting at verse 1. So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They took their livestock and their property which they had acquired in the land of Canaan and came to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Let me skip down a little bit further, skip down to verse 28. After giving us a record of the people who were with Jacob in the family going down to Egypt, we... Pick up at verse 28, now he, that is Jacob, sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me, and the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. This is God's Word. Bow with me in prayer. 
God, you exist eternally, from eternity past to eternity future. You never change. You never grow tired. You never grow weak. You are a fountain of all blessings, and as you give continuously, you never lose anything. You're never diminished. You never lack. Thank you that because of that and because of your kindness to us, we can rest confident in your presence with your people, that we can know that you are with us and that you will provide for us in every way that you deem fit. Help us to trust you in that provision. And help us to see especially how we have benefited from and most clearly and directly through the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the ministry of your Holy Spirit. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So, picking up at Genesis 46, last week we more or less looked at the climax of the, of the Joseph story, which is Joseph revealing himself to his brothers, Joseph rec- being reconciled to his brothers. That's, the, that's the, the climax of the story. All the tension has now more or less been resolved, and now we're going from the, the peak of the climax. The story is now starting to move back down the peak, down to the more level plane of, uh, of the conclusion of the story. And there are two things that the conclusion of Genesis, starting at 46 through chapter 50, there are two big, two things that it does. One is in terms of a narrow focus, and then one, the, a, a broader focus. Uh, one, remember that every time we come to a story in Genesis, whether you're starting with the creation account, or Noah, or Abraham, or anything like that, all the way here to Joseph, There's the story, the immediate story, but that story is always the story within the larger story, right? So in the immediate story pertaining to Joseph and his family, and particularly where Jacob sort of is brought back to the forefront as the patriarch here in these closing chapters, the immediate view or focus of the story is to see how the family not only is reconciled but is restored how they're brought back together again, and harmony exists, and they begin to experience the joy of of reunion. There's that. But then there's also the, the story within the story. The larger story is Genesis is going to end with a depiction or an explanation as to how the covenant people ended up outside of the land of Canaan, which was the promised land, the land that God had promised to give them, why they were outside of the promised land and are found in the very next book in Exodus, found to be in Egypt in a land that does not belong to them and that has not been promised to them. Is that a mistake? Is it an accident? And what the author of Genesis wants us to understand is that no, of course it's not. Everything that happens here, whether it's about the family in their interpersonal relationships or the broader narrative of how God is building and creating a people for Himself, all of this is by design, all of it is intentional. So what we're going to look at today in, in chapters 46 and 47, we're going we're to use verses 1 through 4 as sort of the, the, the template or the guide for the other portions of Scripture that we drop in on. And what 46, 1 through 4 sort of does for us in terms of setting the tone 
for these two chapters, and if we could try to sum up thematically what this passage of Scripture is trying to teach us, I think what we would say is something like this, that God is everywhere with His people, and His blessings are sure to follow. That's what we see in Genesis 46 and 47, that God is everywhere with His people, and His blessings are sure to follow. All right, notice the way that this is laid out for us in the opening paragraph in verses 1 through 4. Jacob has in his mind that he's going down to meet up with Joseph. After more than 20 years of never seeing his son, thinking that his son was dead, he now hears that he's alive and he's going to meet with him again, and it can't come soon enough because Jacob does not know how much time he has left before he draws his last breath. But precisely because Jacob is growing old and weak and is nearing the end of his life, there is some sort, where we read by implication, there must be some sort of fear or trepidation on Jacob's part that although we need to go down to Egypt, one, because that's where Joseph is, but two, that's where we're going to be saved from this famine, this regional famine, there's a little bit of concern on Jacob's part apparently that he recognizes, I'm leaving the land of promise. This is where God told my grandfather, Abraham, my father, Isaac, and has told me this is where he is going to do his work. This is where his blessings are going to be fulfilled, here in this location. And so Jacob is leaving that spot, that location, going to a foreign land that does not belong to him, that God has made no promises that Jacob has any right to or any inheritance to, what happens if Jacob goes down there, he gets to see Joseph, but he dies and croaks before he can get back to the promised land? And so before Jacob ever actually leaves the zip code, he's in Beersheba, and he enters into a time of worship with the Lord, and the Lord graciously, kindly, mercifully comes to this aging, tired, weak man, and he says to him, Jacob, do not be afraid. Everything that is going to happen from this moment until you draw your last breath, I've got all of this under control. This is not going to interrupt or change any of the promises that I have made to you. It's not going to change in any way the direction that I have set for you and for your descendants, for my people. And the guarantee of that is that God says, unlike all the other gods of the other nations who are rooted and chained to the land that they claim. So the Egyptians have their gods, but you know what the problem is with the Egyptian gods? Their gods are only good when you're in the land of Egypt. The Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Aramaeans and all these other people, they have their gods, but you don't enter into that god's territory until you enter into their land. They're, they're rooted, they're limited, they're gods that they worship to a very specific place. God, though, as the pre-existent creator of everything that exists, is not bound by time, and He's certainly not bound by space. God does not travel with Jacob to the southern border of Israel or Canaan before he enters into the Sinai Peninsula down to Egypt and then says to Jacob, well, you know what? I can't go any further. Here's where the line draw. Here's where the line's drawn. I have to stop here. I'll see you when you get back. 
No. God makes it clear to Jacob that Jacob, because you belong to me, because you and your family are mine, anywhere that you go, that's where I will also be. You can bank on it. And we probably ought to say right from the outset that this is one of those places where we tend to think, we, we look back almost, we're tempted to be almost condescending with some of the Old Testament saints, that they have to be told these things, right? We're so sophisticated, we New Covenant, New Testament people, because we've got this wealth of revelation about who God is, and we've just come to figure Him out so much better than these poor, ancient, Near Eastern people. How absurd it is that Jacob would have to be told that God is not bound to a specific geographical location. Of course He's not. We don't necessarily have those same kind of explicit concerns or fears, but we have that same kind of mindset, right? We tend to oftentimes even unconsciously divide all of life up between the sacred and the secular, right? We draw boundary lines for where God is and where God works, and then where the rest of us just sort of happen to roam and work and play, that's where God is not. So if we're talking about church matters, if we're talking about spiritual things, oh yes, praise the Lord, He is in control, He's going to provide, He's going to protect, He's going to give us what we need, He's going to lead, He's going to direct, He's going to do all these things. But Monday morning comes, and you're on your way to the office, or you're on your way to drop kids off to school, or you're dealing with a screaming kid, or whatever it is, and all of a sudden God is nowhere to be found. Why? Because this isn't the realm that God is in control of. You've got the same kind of mindset. I've got the same kind of mindset. I forget that God is not bound by the little artificial divisions and boundaries and compartments and boxes that I create in my life. Every single inch of this creation, every single moment of my existence and my time in my life is filled with the presence of God. There is nowhere that you go, there is nowhere that we can go where we escape from the presence of God. I don't care how mundane the location is, or how trying it is, or how exotic it is, or anything like that. Anywhere that God's people go, because they are God's people, God is with them. Jacob needs to know that. Jacob needs to know that because when his eyes close for the last time, his eyes are not going to be closed as he looks out on the horizon at the promised land. Jacob's eyes are going to close in a foreign land. Jacob's life is going to be brought to an end without having the fulfillment of many of the promises that God has made to him and to his fathers before him. He needs to know that it's not because he has outrun God or that God is not with him, that he's not seen all of this in the here and now. God is as much with Joseph and Jacob and the rest of the family in Egypt as he is in Canaan, and there is nothing that can change that. But notice also in the way that this, this scene, this episode, 
opens up, you have the assurance that God is, first and foremost, going to be with Jacob when he goes down to Egypt, but you also have an indication that God is, even as Jacob goes to Egypt and even as Jacob dies in Egypt, that God's work does not end with Jacob's life. Because he says in verse 4, I will go down with you to Egypt and I will also surely bring you up again. I'm not going to answer this question, but it is worth asking. In what way is God going to bring Jacob up again? He's not going to bring him back up to the promised land while he's still drawing breath. That's not what's going to happen because we read about Jacob's death a few chapters later in Egypt. There's something sort of tantalizing here in the promise of God that I will be with you and even after you die, I will still be doing something with you and with your descendants. So the first part of this story, or the first main emphasis of this story in chapters 46 and 47, goes to establish the fact that God is certainly with Jacob and with the covenant family. And the way that that's demonstrated, the way that that's shown in this passage, God does not show up again in Egypt and give Jacob a vision. He does not give him an audible voice or anything like that. Rather, the way that we know that God is with Jacob and the family is because the author shows us very clearly these unique and distinct blessings that God's people enjoy. That is evidence or an indication that God is in fact with them, that He goes with them and His blessings are sure to follow. That's the first part. So look at this. How do, how do we know that God is with Jacob in Egypt. What are the blessings that give evidence of the fact that God is still with him and is working with him? Let me give you just three, all right? First, Jacob and his family go into a foreign land. They are strangers, but because of the way that God has already prepared the scene and set the stage with Joseph and his position, these strangers come into the land, and they are given property that they can own, and not just any property, they're given good land. So look at the way that this shows up in the text. Start at 40, chapter 46, verse 34. Joseph starts off, we read this verse, Joseph starts off by saying, now listen guys, when I introduce you to Pharaoh… Right? Ultimately, he's got final say on, on all of the land. When I introduce you to Pharaoh, you tell him, let him know that we're shepherds by trade, because that's going to make it easier for you to get to this region of Goshen where you'll be able to live as a family, as a community together. And so Joseph tells them that. They come in and they are introduced then to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh asks them, Ask Jacob and Joseph and the, and the family, you know, something about themselves. Skip down to chapter 47, verse 6. After the family is introduced to Pharaoh, Pharaoh says 
to Jacob and his family in 47.6, the land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. Don't just give them any place that they can go. Give them somewhere that they're going to be able to thrive, somewhere that will be commendable to them. Give them the region of Goshen, but make sure they have a green, lush area so that they can live and settle and do what needs to be done so that life can be good for them. And then skip a little bit further, chapter 47, verse 11. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land. And then just to put the icing on the cake, as we continue to read in chapter 47, the famine continues to go through Egypt. And the people in the land continue to run through the food supply. They continually have to come back to Joseph to get more food. And so Joseph says every time they come, they have to buy food. They don't just get it for free. And in chapter 47, things have, are getting so bleak that Joseph says, okay, here's not, here now is how you're going to buy your, your staple of food. You're going to have to sell your land to Pharaoh. And all of the normal, average citizens of Egypt essentially sell their land to Pharaoh so that they can get food. Pharaoh will allow them to live on it. He'll allow them to farm it. But they now become something like sharecroppers, tenant farmers. They don't own land anymore. But look at what we find in 47.27. After... All of the land has been sold to Pharaoh. No one owns any land except for the priestly class, the Egyptian priests. They get to hold on to their land. Then we're told in 47:27, now Israel lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen, and they acquired property in it. Not only do they get good land, they actually get to own it, while all the normal native-born Egyptians are having to sell their land, the land that they were born on, to, eat, to Pharaoh in order to live. How do you explain that turn of events, that these strangers come in and they get good land and land that they actually get to take possession of? I think the author wants us to know by setting the stage in 46, 1 through 4, well, if God is going with Jacob, it must be that God has provided for them in this way. This is not good luck. God did this for His people. That's one blessing that God gives that gives an indication, gives evidence of the fact that He is with His people in Egypt. Here's a second one. In chapter 47, look at verse 7. Joseph brought his father, Jacob, and presented him to Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Do you picture this? Here is 
130-something-year-old Jacob hobbling into the throne room of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is seated on his little Egyptian throne, decked out with all kinds of regalia and jewels and property and money. It's right, it's to the hilt. This guy comes in, probably barely able to walk. He may have actually been carried in. He's introduced to Pharaoh, one of, if not the dominant power at this particular time. And if anyone needs to get something out of this encounter, who would you think it would be looking at this in terms of a still picture? Oh, well, clearly the old decrepit man needs to get something from this beneficent, wise ruler, Pharaoh. So Joseph comes in, Dad, this is Pharaoh. Pharaoh, this is Dad. And Jacob says, tell you what, king, why don't you let me bless you? I've got something to give to you that you don't get unless I give it to you. Hebrews actually makes a big point out of this, talking about the superiority of Christ's priesthood. We won't get into this, but there's a, there's a phrase where the author of Hebrews says, certainly the lesser is blessed by the greater. By Jacob blessing Pharaoh, Jacob is depicted as being in the greater position. He is giving something to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is not giving something to Jacob. And in fact, what you see going on here is nothing less than what God told Abraham He would do. I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you, Abraham, be a blessing. And so here's Jacob in his declining years, outside of the land of promise, and God is doing through Jacob what He said He would do beginning with Abraham. I will make you a vehicle of blessing to everyone that you come into contact with should you walk in faith and obedience, and Jacob is doing that. Number three, a third evidence. Turn to 4727. Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt and Goshen, and they acquired property in it. We've already read that. And were fruitful and became very numerous. This, this phrase, they became fruitful and very numerous, this is the same phrasing, the same two key words that we have all the way back in Genesis 1.28, where after God creates man and woman, He says to them, be fruitful and multiply. Those two verbs, be fruitful and multiply, are the same two verbs that are used here at the, end of verse 20, of, at the end of verse 27, that Jacob and his family were fruitful and they multiplied. They are not just surviving in this foreign land, they are thriving in it. Those are just three examples that bear witness to the fact that God has not left His people, that God travels with them. In fact, God doesn't even have to travel. They're just everywhere they move and breathe. They are in God's presence. And God's presence is being made real to them or is being made clear in the fact that He blesses them. So, here's where we make the turn to application. You look at this and you say, 
All this is fine and good for Jacob and for the 70-so family members that come down. They get nice land. They get nice property. They're throwing out blessings to people right and left because they're too blessed to be stressed, right? They're fruitful. They multiply. All right, Merritt, here's the problem. Have you seen where I live? I don't have even a single acre to my name. Do you know the zip code that I live in? Have you met my neighbors? I am not in a position where I'm throwing out blessings right and left because things are going so great and so swimmingly with me that I'm just spilling over the riches of God's presence into the lives of other people, right? You, you wrestle with that. Well, if this is the way that God makes His presence known to His people in Genesis 46, if that's really the point of this story, or at least the theme of it, well then, how in the world do we make sense of the fact that we're not given huge tracts of land, we're not given riches, we're not guaranteed to thrive and prosper materially? I'd like to. But it's just not happening. And this is where it's important to always take the way that God has revealed Himself in the Old Testament and to line it up with the way that God reveals Himself in the New Testament. Over and over and over again, Paul and the author of Hebrews and John and Peter, all of the New Testament writers want to say, one of the main reasons that we have these Old Testament stories is because the Old Testament stories give us a tangible example or a model or a paradigm for how God is doing His real work in the blessings of Jesus Christ. Paul and Hebrews say that all of these things that, that Jacob and his family are enjoying, you know what they, what they call them? They call them shadows of the good thing to come. You ever try to lay hold of a shadow? Can't do it. The problem, though, is that rather than thinking even these blessings are shadowy figures of greater blessings to come, we read this passage of Scripture and we think, oh, there's real blessing. That's a blessing that I can get my hands on, that I can sink my teeth into. And because I don't have those kinds of blessings, it must not be that God favors me the way that He favors His other people. Don't think that way. What does God promise Jacob when he's leaving Canaan in 46, 1 through 4? The main promise that he gives to Jacob is that I will be with you. That is a huge promise. So big, in fact, that the Old Testament and even the New Testament continues to build on that promise of God being with His people so that when God actually comes in human form, takes on flesh, what is one of His names? Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. When Jesus has finished His work here on earth, 
before He reaches the cross, before the resurrection, He says to His disciples, look, there's only going to be a little bit more time that I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to go, but, but, so that you're not left alone, I'm going to give you, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, whom you know, who has been with you and will be in you. Paul says in Romans 5 that the love of God does not disappoint us even when we're going through tribulation and trial because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He has given to us. Jesus says to His disciples that where two or three are gathered in My name, there I am with them in their midst. If we're to believe what Jesus says, if we're to believe what the New Testament has to teach us, we're to understand that as good as these gifts and these blessings are for Jacob and his family in Genesis, they pale in comparison to what God has given us. God gives us nothing less than Himself in giving us the person of His Son. He gives us nothing less than Himself in giving us the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And we know, we know on a daily basis for those who have been made God's children, we know that God is with us, that He favors us, that He provides and protects for us, that He is guaranteeing that His purposes are going to be completed for us. We know that because we have His Spirit within us. Do you know that? Don't fall prey to what this world tries to sell you. Don't buy into the notion that God's favor and presence is measured on the things that you can touch with your hands. It's empty. It's a shadow. It's not going to last. But we will, from the moment we come into union with Christ until the moment that we stand before Him on, at His throne, seeing Him face to face, we will always have the presence of the Lord with us, and that in increasing ways. That is a blessing. That is a blessing that can't be bought, it can't be given, it can't be taken, and it is something that is far more valuable than anything that this world would have to offer you. Don't minimize or cheapen the gift that God has given you and given His people in His very presence. So God is with Jacob as he goes to Egypt. God is with you. He is with us as we sit in this room, as we go to the office, as we go to school, as we go to visit the in-laws, as we go to the soccer field or the Little League game. Wherever it is that we go, God is with us, present with his people for our good, for our benefit, for our joy, and he does that as a sheer gift so that we can be blessed by his presence. 
Here's the second part, though. In the same way that in the opening paragraph of chapter 46, God gives a tremendous promise to Jacob to say, wherever you go, Jacob, I'm, Jacob, I'm going to be there. You go down to Egypt, I, you're not leaving me behind. You do not escape me. You do not run further than what I can go. I'm with you even in Egypt. And then you look and you see all of the blessings that God is giving His people, good land, the ability to be a blessing to others possessions, properties. The family is growing and thriving. You look at all that and you think, well, man, why in the world would they ever even think about going back to Canaan? They've got it better here than they ever did in Canaan. Up to this point, the only real land that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob ever owned was a tomb and a hole in the ground for a well. If you're judging by worldly standards, that pales in comparison to what Jacob and his family are enjoying in Egypt. Why would they ever go back? Have you ever thought, by the way, just pause here for a second. We'll come back to the story. Have you ever thought about the fact that maybe one of the reasons that God does not allow His people to become too comfortable in this life is because He doesn't want us to settle for this life? Maybe the reason that Jacob and his family will not want to stay in Egypt is because God will turn events in such a way that Egypt will not be a paradise for them. It will become hell for them. And if you go from living high and fat on the land to now being treated as scum, as slaves, you know what you begin to think? You know what? It started off well. Things aren't going so great. I wonder if we might be able to make a better go of it somewhere else. Egypt is not so attractive anymore when you become a slave. It's dangerous to enjoy the blessings of God because my heart is so fickle and so easily swayed that I do become complacent and content with cheap, shallow, temporary things. And it is a decided grace and mercy of God that He weans me off of those things and, yes, even from time to time, takes things away from me so that I won't put all of my hope and aspirations and confidence in this life. But I say, I want something other than this. Jacob, I'm going to be with you when you go down to Egypt, but I'm going to bring you back up again. That's not your resting place. And look at the way that this plays itself out by Jacob's own testimony and admission. Let me draw, let me draw your attention to two places. First, in chapter 47... Verse 7, when Joseph brings Jacob in to meet Pharaoh. We read verse 7 where Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh, 47.8, says to Jacob, probably making polite conversation, How many years have you lived, old-timer? Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my sojourning are 130. 
Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourney. And Pharaoh is probably thinking, I am sorry I asked. Good luck, Joseph, with all of that. And he just sort of backs up and leaves the room. Jacob is a man who's lived a hard life. Jacob is a man who has lived for 130 years, and when Jacob looks back and characterizes his life to Pharaoh, he basically says, I am an old, tired man. I am worn out. I have spent my entire life wandering from one place to the next, going into one conflict and out of a conflict, only to enter into another conflict to be delivered from that. I'm exhausted. Jacob is not impressed with Egypt. Jacob knows that he is not going to find his rest in Egypt. Jacob knows that unless God does something miraculous, he's not even going to find rest in the promised land unless God makes it restful for him. And so when you get towards the end of chapter 47, look down at verse 29. When the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. You don't need to imitate every cultural habit that you find in Scripture. Just sit by your loved one's bed. You don't have to do the whole hand under the thigh thing, okay? Place your hand under that. Swear to me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And Joseph said, I'll do as you said. And he said, swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. Chapter 46 starts with Jacob worshiping God at an altar that he builds in Beersheba, and God saying, Jacob, I'm with you wherever you go. Chapter 47 ends with Jacob making Joseph swear to him that he will take his bones in a box and bury him in the land of Canaan, and when he hears that that's going to happen, he worships. Jacob sounds like the kind of person who is not going to get too comfortable or content in Egypt, and he sounds like the kind of person who is expecting that there is more to come even after he draws his last breath, which is why it's so important to make sure that he's not buried in Egypt and he is buried in the promised land. One of the things that God does for us in allowing us to grow weary in this world. It's like Paul says in Romans 8, in in this body, in this time, us and even the creation itself groans under the weight and the burden of the condemnation of sin. We and creation itself, we are waiting for that day when we are redeemed and bought out of all of this. This present existence is not home for us. It was never meant to be home. As soon as sin entered into the world, there had to be a new home that God would create for His people. 
It is the mercy and kindness of God. If He brings us to the end of this life before Christ returns, if He gives us the grace and mercy to draw our last breath, hoping for and anticipating more things to come, promises that extend beyond this present life, that is a good hope to have. That is a hope that even death cannot destroy and death cannot take from you. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, if we find within ourselves the kind of desire that this world cannot satisfy, it must be, or it is reasonable to think that we have been made for another world. God is good and kind to bless His people. He is good and kind to give you the ability to enjoy family, to enjoy employment, to enjoy an education, to enjoy air conditioning, ability. all of those things. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no change or shifting shadow. Every good thing is from Him and is given to us for us to enjoy, yet not in such a way that we begin to find our ultimate satisfaction in the things of this life. And He will mercifully and graciously give us a recurring dissatisfaction with this life so that our greatest hopes and joys and our hearts long for something that is not yet here. We walk with attention in this life as God's people. We above all people are, have most reason to be thankful and joyful for what God has done and what God is doing now. And we of all people know most clearly that all of this pales in comparison to what is coming to us in the future. We are never fully satisfied. And listen, people, when you are not satisfied in this life, so long as you are not satisfied because you know that this life does not satisfy, it causes you to look with longing and expectation to the life to come, God is honored by that dissatisfaction. Because He looks great. He looks all satisfying. He looks all generous. He is a river of delight that never runs dry. Be thankful that God is with you everywhere. Be thankful that God demonstrates His presence to you by making Himself known in the blessings that we have in Jesus Christ through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But please, 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 Take and adopt more of the mindset that Jacob articulates here, where you recognize that even with all the kindnesses and the grace and the blessings of God, you will go to your grave in this present world order not being fully satisfied because you will not be fully satisfied until you are satisfied in the presence of Christ Himself. Let's pray. Father, You will show to us in the ages to come the riches of Your mercy and grace. We cannot even begin to imagine what that will be like. It is a testimony to how weak and how small-minded we are that we can be drawn away by the enticements of this world. 
Thank you, Father, that you will not leave us to our own devices, but by your Spirit, by your Word, because of the promises that have been guaranteed to us by Christ, that you are certain to grow us and mature us, that you wean us off the things of this world so that we thirst and hunger for your righteousness and your presence in a new created order. Thank you that we know that that's coming to us, not because we are going to make it happen, not because we can earn it, but because Jesus Christ has bought and paid for that with his own life, and that his resurrection and ascension to the throne room in heaven is a guarantee that for every single person who has been united to him, we too one day will be raised up to perfect joy in perfect life, never to be taken from us again. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray this. Amen. Andy will conclude the service along with the praise team with one final song. Let me just make an appeal to you, especially if you're here today and you don't know what it's mean to have any kind of hope that extends beyond this life. You have no concept or no assurance of the fact that God has anything more to give you than what you can experience in the here and now. You don't know the riches that are available to you in Jesus Christ. I'll be at the door at the end of the service, but I'll stay here and talk with you for as long as you'd like to explore those riches and to give you the assurance that that promise can be made good for you today. Don't leave too quickly. Andy? Let's stand and respond.
message to us this morning. None above him, none before him, all of time in his hands. For his throne it shall remain and ever stand. All the that day when we're all together in glory as we're looking upon his throne we're there with all our loved ones who have gone before us we're there to simply worship Christ Jesus our Savior and Lord though I may not see what the future brings I will Savior King, then my joy complete, standing face to face in the presence of the ancient. Chapter 113, 2 through 4. Blessed be the name of the Lord from his time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to its setting. The name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above the nations and his glory above the heavens. Amen. God bless.